Hey everyone, welcome to ASC's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Kelly Swales and I'm your host. I'm an ASCP certified clinical laboratory scientist and I work in the publications department at ASCP. Today we're talking about the Leadership Institute Book Club book, Invisible Women by Caroline Triado Perez. We've got some great guests and we're going to talk about this book. Great. I'm a uh... Allison Krywanzik. I am um, a deputy medical examiner at the Cuyahoga County Medical Examiner's Office in Cleveland, Ohio. Hi, I'm Dr. Catherine Marie Stapniuk, and I am the assistant medical director of clinical pathology at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. And hello, I'm Dr. Leticia Nunez-Sargote. I am assistant professor of clinical laboratory sciences at the University of Kansas Medical Center in Kansas City, Kansas. Well, hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Before we get started, I have a little bit of housekeeping to get out of the way. First, CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide, you guessed it, continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. Also, this episode is brought to you in part by the ASCP Leadership Institute. This online certificate program offers 18 on-demand courses that provide CME, CMLE credits, and practical leadership skills to advance your career. Learn communication and conflict skills, leadership styles, and how to be more situationally effective through courses such as driving organizational change, burnout, leading with emotional intelligence, and many, many more. Listeners who enroll in the Leadership Institute can save $50 with promo code LIPODC23. Again, that code is LIPODC23 to save 50 bucks on the ASCP Leadership Institute. All right, now we can like talk about the book. As we know, data is fundamental to the modern world from education to healthcare to economic development and public policy. Uh, We really rely on data to allocate resources and make decisions. In the book, Invisible Women, the author argues that there's a quote, gender data gap, that the bulk of the world's data is based on male bodies and male behaviors. And the result is a world that not only caters to men, but often actively disadvantages women. This causes women to pay tremendous costs for this bias in time, money, and even with their lives. Invisible Women is divided into several parts, which focuses on different aspects of daily life in which the gender data gap exists, such as the workplace design, medicine, and public life. In each part, the author provides many examples to support her argument. So my first question for you guys, did any section of the book or particular examples cited Uh, really resonate you more than others? And if so, why? One of the parts in the book that I felt like I could really um, relate to is where she was talking about female PhD candidates and sort of hitting that area in your life where it's both the acceleration of your career and also peak time for women to be having children. And so, you know, you kind of unintentionally can stall out at a really important time if you want to have children, which male colleagues don't face for a lot of reasons. And, you know, being someone, I had two kids during residency and I was very supported and empowered by my program, but I know talking to a lot of my peers, that wasn't the case. And um, 
her pointing out that that contributes to a gender inequity was a new way to think about it for me. Yeah. And I know, though, I, I did not personally go through this experience just in regards to what Allison said. And with uh, pregnancy and residency, I recall when I was on my clerkship rotations as a medical student, you know, a neurosurgery uh, resident, she had, you know, unexpectedly got pregnant, which I mean, you know, happens. And she was very nervous about mentioning that to her you know, co-resident and her, you know, program director and everything. I mean, fortunately for her, she she was in a very uh, supported program. But as you can imagine, as you know, with certain residency programs like neurosurgery, that was a very, I don't know if she ended up having to extend her residency because of that or, you know, how it did ultimately impact her other co-residents. But, you know, it is a very stressful thing, you know, to go through. So I'm going to touch on some of the things you said, but I did want to mention for me in the book, there were a lot of points that were super important. The one that really struck me was the and the chapter where they talk about the costless resource, because as a working woman and with a family, I am fortunate to share a lot of the responsibilities. But I know that the majority, like the book mentions, the majority of responsibilities for family, transportation, keeping the house clean, all, taking care of family members, all of those things are not remunerated. And that cost is reverberates into everything. It affects people's access to their own care. People like postpone their own care to care for others. I mean, and so to me, I I see that in my family and how it had to be an either or proposition. And now I feel fortunate that I have the ability to facilitate that for myself where I have, I am able to hire people to help me with those needs. But that comes at a cost of like, I have to work full-time to sustain the full-time salary of other people. And those people are not even cared for by the system. It's really hard to, for them to get healthcare, you know, retirement, all of those things, because these are part-time things like babysitting or house cleaning or all those, uh, you know, take care of the garden, whatever. And going back to that, and a lot of women, I think, who have access to education and resources, postponing having children. I am in my late 30s and had my one and only child. And that decision was difficult because I, I had a terrible, terrible experience with birth. And I, you know, almost died. And And I'm not sure if that would have been the case had I had a child 10 years ago. But unfortunately, my financial and educational situation did not afford I could not afford to do that, to make that decision, to, to have that choice. And so it's kind of a catch-22 where if you have the ability to have children earlier, that might impinge in your education opportunities or your work opportunities. But then later on, like feel like that might have been part of the reason why I had such medical problems. And that's because I'm having children older. And I'm not sure we have enough data to really explain or see how that's going to happen for a lot of women. So again, the book very much timely. We don't have enough data and we're not really collecting it systematically so we can use it. At the age of you were whenever you had your kid, you're a geriatric mother or something. And that's always a kick in the teeth when you, you gotta hear that, love right? that word. It's yeah, just lovely. <laughs> I kind of like, I, I believe in Europe, it's not, uh, you're not really considered geriatric until you're 40. You know, it's a little bit nicer than the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, but, but still, being geriatric at forty, it's like, come on, guys. Oh yeah, no, I mean, no, I, I, I know what you mean. It's, it's, it makes you feel. It, it doesn't make you feel great. Yeah. You know? No, no, yeah. All right, uh, Leticia, you, you actually mentioned something that I kind of want to touch base on. You talked a little bit about the unpaid work that women do, and, and a lot of this book, I think, focuses on that, or at least touches on the unpaid labor of women all around the world. As you know, we're all working women. Do you guys feel that this situation applies to you? And have you seen changes in the roles of breadwinner and homemaker between the genders in general? I mean, I think I'm, you know, I'm pretty fortunate in uh, my situation. Uh, I'm considered the breadwinner, you know, in my partnership. Uh, So, you know, my husband does do a lot of the food shopping, the laundry and, and things like that. But you know, and I think, you know, a few of my colleagues who are women, if they are the breadwinner, they have uh, similar situations as well. I think where it gets a little harder is when you're, you know, both you and your spouse are, you know, either, you know, at the I, I, like similar pay level or career level where um, maybe you're both working pretty long hours or what have you. Things that I recall hearing from, um, you know, people throughout like my training process, whether it was, you know, at the NIH or, you know, as a resident, a lot of times they have been in fortunate partnerships where they have a balance. Like if someone's good at like cooking, they're the cooker, but then the spouse is the cleaner or, you know, things like that. But I know that's not the, the situation for, you know, everyone. I think I get what I was trying to go for, but thank you for that. I I agree. I think that's that may be because we're all working professionals. We may have shared experiences. I will say though that what I what I find myself thinking now that I completed my my terminal degree, I was thinking I probably wouldn't want to take another position, even if the pay was higher because of the flexibility. And I think that's even if you are working and you may be making good money, you may not make the choice to jump for and have additional career opportunities that may pay you better or or be more um, fulfilling professionally because you may be in a situation where you have to be flexible. And I remember that in the laboratory working with my colleagues who had children during the 2008 crisis, they were the breadwinners because their, their partners lost their jobs. And that job security of working in healthcare, even though you may not get paid as much as you could elsewhere, like in the industry, because of that fear that you have to have just pay income. And a lot of times in the book, they also mentioned the part-time situation. I do know a lot of uh, my laboratory colleagues who would do PRN or part-time because somebody's got to take care of the kids or work night shift because that's, Mm -hmm. you know, the flip side and, you know, their partner works during the day and they would work the off shift so they can take care of the kids during the day, that type of situation. But in a lot of cases that kind of pigeonholes people into not being able to grow professionally and also grow financially. So from my experience too, and I think, I think you're, you're totally right. Like we have a lot of shared experiences because we're all sort of in similar places in life right now for me. So I'm, I'm a single parent and one of my kids has a developmental disability. And I feel like there was a very big change for me in terms of uh, from residency to an attending position and having that extra income was monumental. And, you know, I remember being, you know, I'm a, I'm in residency and 
you know, people are, you know, telling me, well, you have to pick her up at 930 to drive her over to this appointment over here and then drive her back to this other appointment over here. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, thank God I have a supportive program. And and what do people do who don't, yeah. you know, what do people do who have, you know, are paid by the hour or who, you know, don't have health insurance because it's not something that you can predict. And, um, you know, I'm fortunate that I, I have very supportive parents who are able to to do a lot of that, but it's it's the time, you're totally right, that sometimes that time is worth more than, um, than an additional salary would be. And having some flexibility in your work-life balance is kind of like an immeasurable benefit. Oh, absolutely. Okay. If you're able, if you're privileged enough to be in a position where you can, like, hey, I've got to go do this running around midday, because obviously during the day, that's when all that stuff happens, right? That's when 90% mm-hmm. of the people are working. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's an immeasurable benefit if, if you're allowed to do that. It's hard. You might want to move up higher on like the career ladder or get like, you know, like the, another or different title, but either thinking about, you know, do I want to have kids or do I want to have another, you know, like trying to figure out like that impact. Cause I mean, even if you do have, you know, supportive parents or, you know, a supportive partner, you know, do you want to miss out on those years of your child's life? You know, I think, I think that's something that's changing more, you know, now compared to, you know, like, I think I hate to say it like, you know, in the mid 1900s like in the 50s or whatever you know absent parents were not atypical that was kind of but I think now a lot of parents are wanting to be there more you know for their kids sure I think we're shifting more toward like an actual partnership in terms of child rearing and household management Mm -hmm. uh, whereas before maybe it wasn't an actual partnership but you know like like you had mentioned, Catherine, in the 1950s, we had more of a paradigm in the United States where the husband slash dad went to work and the mom slash wife stayed home. Like her, it was her job was keeping up the house. That was her full-time job. It was all unpaid labor. She's not getting paid for it. Oh, yeah. That was her job. Whereas now we've got the paradigm where, you know, we've got two working professionals in a household that may or may not have children. That and you still need to manage the household, right? Like the bills still need to be paid. Someone still has to call the plumber, all of that stuff. So I think we're moving toward a paradigm where where those sort of duties are more 50-50, but I, we're not at 50-50 yet, I don't think, just in, in, in general speaking terms. Oh, yeah. And, and I think because I see a lot of, you know, because I think where she really touched a lot in, you know, Invisible Women is just how like, a lot of times it might be the woman who is doing part-time. And when you're doing part-time, you're not the one that's, you know, has healthcare or retirement benefits or even, you know, I think when she was talking about like the nail salons, for example, like, you know, there I'm like, you know, the fact that so many of these jobs that might be dominated by women, like they're considered contract employees. So they're not, you know, they're not getting the benefits that you would have has like a an employee of a system and you know that's very unfortunate because as you get older how you, you can't you know you don't want to work forever you know right right okay so you kind of mentioned something about female dominated workplaces and I kind of want to 
talk about how we can maybe apply some of the things that the author talks about in this book to laboratory medicine and pathology. Because pathology itself isn't female-dominated per se, but I would uh, say that the laboratory professional sections are. And even though pathology is still quote-unquote male-dominated, females have a lot of, there's a lot of women pathologists, right? It's not 90-10, it's more like Mm -hmm. 60-40. So can you guys kind of talk about your thoughts on some of the aspects that the author talks about in terms of, of data gap and how that applies to laboratory medicine and pathology and how our, like even if like how our laboratories are built, how the microscopes are built, are they geared more toward male bodies and female bodies? Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, so many thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> so, Let's hear them. Let's hear them. I agree. I think that a part of it is too. And if you look back at the history of laboratory, especially, especially the laboratory work itself, it has always been a very female or, or women oriented profession since the 1920s, since the beginning of programs and training, a lot of of women would go to those programs. I think a part of that is also, you know, being able to participate in healthcare without having to be a nurse, Mm -hmm. uh, which is another very female oriented by the numbers, like very much so. But I think in terms of the structure of the lab, some of the things that I really sometimes worry me, I mean, it's the type of structure, you know, we are uh, don't really know how the different, you know, having contact with different biochemical substances that we're in contact with, the risk of infection due to manipulating or interacting with all of these biohazards. I mean, even with universal precautions and everything, there's always that risk when preparing samples and reading them and all of that, that those, you know, studies from, you know, OSHA and all of the organizations, they don't really distinguished risks. I mean, obviously, you know, don't drench yourself in formula. You know, how for years, if you're in a laboratory for decades, like how does that impact your health? You know, ergonomics as well. I mean, one size fits all stools and seating and one size fits all surfaces. I mean, some of those lines that are set up so that the work can be done in the instruments the type of fonts, the type of color for the screens. I mean, all of those things are aggravating and we don't really know how they may be affecting in terms of like buildup of, of harm to workers. And so this being a very female dominated profession, it's even more unfortunate that we're not looking into that more deeply because it would benefit seeing what that impact might be. A nursing does a good job of researching um, some of the issues with their groups. So I think that it's good time for us to, we have a good opportunity to gain data and information about women in the workplace by looking at the laboratory. Oh, yeah. and and I think, because I mean, she touches on seatbelts, like all these different things and, you know, things that you, I think, you know, anytime it's anything says unisex, it's not really you know like i mean gosh think about scrubs unisex scrubs no they're they're men's they're men's scrubs yeah there's not a whole lot of hip room in a unisex scrub outfit (laughs) yeah and so i mean things that you know i don't you know like last show was mentioning like yeah maybe maybe we aren't thinking about like like stools like things that are just as simple as stools or microscopes I don't think it's ever been in our heads that maybe they're not, they're not truly as unisex as we thought 
they were. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not, and I I don't know how to go about looking at those, but I, I think it's important to think about, you know, and especially, you know, how we store, you know, stuff in the lab. Like, is it really at an appropriate height for both of our lab members? And I think, you know, there's the mention of, I forget if it was Google or, you know, there was that woman that was in, you know, a lead position and she thought about pregnancy parking, you know, so even things, I think what I realized after reading this book, you know, there's a lot of things that I don't, if I haven't gone through it yet as a woman, I'm not thinking about, you know, like with how many women we have in the lab, maybe we should consider having easy or accessible lactation rooms and storage for, you know, breast milk. It, and it's just, it's funny until you start seeing it or people start speaking about it. And I think there's just a tendency we go about our day, maybe not considering what changes, like simple changes we can make to improve our lives just because, you know, we just haven't thought about it where there's no reason we shouldn't be, you know, considering these things. Yeah, absolutely. And I just like to echo to the concerns about PPE fit mm-hmm. um, and especially things like, you know, the gowns. And, and I feel like that was just even more emphasized at the start of the pandemic, too, when it's like, OK, now we're short on PPE. And am I going to get the right N- N95 that I need? Or, you know, am I going to have to reuse this because it's the last small left? Right. And yeah, like differential stocking and sort of looking at, okay, well, what's our, our lab makeup? What's the, what sizes do we need to be ordering? And to your point too, like lactation rooms. And I think, you know, menstruation products and bathrooms. Oh, you know? yeah. And have, yeah. And that's, you know, I think in some states that's mandatory, but not in others. And some places it's like, I don't think that's thing's been used in 25 years. So like, who knows what's going to come out of there. So yeah, just, you know, a lot of these things and it's like, man, you know, I think that would be really nice. And then it's like, it, would it be a really nice bonus or should it just be the baseline? Like should that yeah. be what I expect walking in somewhere. It was interesting. I was having a similar conversation with someone about how like at forensic pathology too, like, oh, well now there's almost more women than men. So do we still need these like women in forensics focus groups? And I said, you know, absolutely. Because first of all, if you look historically in leadership, it's always men in leadership positions. And it's not just membership roles that matter, it's leadership roles too. And then I think you have to look at what other sort of disciplines you're interfacing with. So we work with police and prosecutors a lot, and that those are very male-dominated professions. So I always have some interesting experiences when I go to homicide scenes or I try to go to court. I've been asked before if I'm there by myself. (laughs) Yep. I don't know who else would be here with me. So yeah, I think that, you know, keeping in mind too, not just your area, but the sort of peripheral uh, areas that you interact with too. Yeah. One of the, the aspects it's, it's one of those things. I was kind of of, of two minds reading this book on one hand. It's like, okay, if, if all you have is a hammer, then everything you see is a nail. Right. So Mm -hmm. That was in the back of my mind as I was reading it. But then also I was looking at it and I'm like, oh, wow, she's actually kind of right. You know, like this is everything's just designed for for men in the male body and their traffic patterns or whatever. One example that she gave uh, really that really stuck out to me was pianist, like world class elite Mm -hmm. concert pianist. Right. They're mostly men. And it's not because men are inherently better at the piano. It's because the, the keyboard is. 
uh, suited for bigger hands. And men usually have bigger hands than women. It's that sort of thing that if we really took a really critical look at like a laboratory environment or a workplace environment or whatever, how are we shortchanging half of our workforce without even realizing it? So I think that that's something that everybody can take a really critical look at. Yeah. I mean, who's to say, like, like you mentioned with the piano, like, cause I guess, you know, there was a male pianist who had smaller hands. So therefore he designed a smaller piano. So, I mean, maybe if we, we do have designs that are more fit for our workforce, we might be more productive overall. And I think, I think there's just that tendency, like we just adapt and do, you know, do the best that we can, like, you know, for example, with the the menstrual products, like something as simple as that, you just kind of make do. You ask your colleagues, hey, <laughs> you know, right, yeah. but why aren't we considering sort of like bigger pictures or what maybe we need to change to make the new norm? So uh, you kind of mentioned something, Allison, that I want to kind of veer to is that the author talks about uh, negative perceptions of women in, in positions of authority or politics. Does that impact the way you practice or the way you work? You know, it's sort of like the myth of merit, right? How has the structure of the workplace that way impacted you guys or has it at all? I will say I, I, I can I can start. I think that the meritocracy, I think that's what you were trying to mention. It's very enticing. It, it makes people feel good to think that we live in a meritocratic society because of the pull yourself by your bootstraps mentality, I believe. And it sounds great and it feels great because if you make it, then you can just give yourself a pat on the back. But I think a lot of times we don't we don't want to acknowledge that the system that we're in privileges some people over others. And regarding to the book, I agree that meritocracy is not the great equalizer because not we're not all formed in the same place. And as a uh, as a woman, I you already as a women we already come in into a world that has thoughts of what we can and cannot do. Even for me and a lot of the people that I know, and and as a faculty member, I have a lot of young learners who want to go into medical school, but are doing their laboratory science as a bachelor's degree. And I always try to encourage, you know, whatever terminal degree, whatever other education, you should go for it. I mean, I would love for people to stay working in the clinical laboratory and be successful there. But there is this idea that furthering your education is not for women in a number of places still. And so I think that working hard is one thing, but luck has a lot to do with it. I personally have encountered a lot of luck and a lot of right place, right time in my life. And I've also been in the wrong place, the wrong time and missed out on opportunities because I'm a woman, because people didn't think that I would be able to make it through a particular situation. And so I've lost scholarship opportunities. I've lost education opportunities, jobs. I have been passed over. And so even though I work, you know, twice as hard and and get all of the things perfect, uh, you still don't know if that's going to actually be good enough. And so to me personally, you know, working hard is really great, but also is looking back and seeing what other barriers are there for people 
And for women in particular, a lot of it is cultural and social, but it's also biological. A lot of people believe that women are incapable of doing things that they can do. It's just a matter of, you know, them thinking that they can't. And even when we, and we talked a lot about pregnancy and how that affects women. Yes, that is something that a lot of people with uteruses will experience, but that shouldn't be the reason why they not, they don't get to do something if they want to. Yeah. And I, I think to your point too, that women, you mentioned sort of social structures and how most women are just trained to be. And I, I like that she broke it down and, and said like, no, men do interrupt more often. And I was like, thank yeah. God, it's not just in my head. Like it's yeah. true. Yeah. It really happens. And I think that, that again, it's, you know, you have to kind of force yourself into a conversation sometimes or really force yourself to be heard in a room maybe where there's multiple people talking and jumping over each other. And I think that, you know, I try to encourage any female trainees that I see who are maybe, I've seen a lot of women who are, they're very smart, very capable, and maybe a little soft-spoken and softer spoken than their male colleagues. And you kind of have to like match their bluster or give women a space to, you know, just show that they're capable and recognize that the loudest person in the room isn't necessarily the one who has the most to say. Yeah. Yeah. You got to get in there and kind of throw your elbows, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, it can be perceived um, as, you know, if you're straight or to the point, I think it's a male will not be considered, you know, anything. But if it's a woman, if you're straight and to the point, you're considered abrasive or like rude. I think one thing I've noticed throughout my career and, you know, talking with other female colleagues, like, you know, you're, you're a doctor, but you're not addressed as a doctor, whereas your male colleagues who might even be a lower standing than you are. And it's, you know, it's offensive. Um, Yeah. You walk into a room and they just, they assume you're the nurse. Yeah. (laughs) Like when I was younger, like a lot younger, um, I remember thinking, you know, going into this career path, it wasn't going to be, I wouldn't face the same issues as other career paths because there were more, there were a lot of women in the medical field and stuff. So I, it, it was a surprise to see you do have those same challenges, you know, despite being in an academic field where you would think it would be a lot more equal. In Invisible Women, the author talks a little bit about like the medical field in general, not in terms of the workplace, but in terms of the practice of medicine. She she discusses how studies for new medications are performed on men, that sort of thing. Have you guys, any of you been in a situation where your knowledge as a medical professional has helped you advocate for yourself or others whose symptoms maybe weren't understood or believed? I don't have any personal anecdotes, but I have some girlfriends that went through some stuff because you know, they were women and, you know, clearly their pain was in their heads. So uh, have you guys had any experiences like that that you can can discuss? So I, I haven't advocated for, for a patient specifically because, um, you know, I do autopsies, so I'm kind of figuring things out after the fact. But I will say that, you know, her point, and she specifically talks about heart attacks or myocardial infarcts and how women tend to have, you know, we call them sort of atypical symptoms because we refer to the male symptoms as sort of the typical baseline. And it is not uncommon anytime that I I end up, I'm doing an autopsy 
on a, a woman who says that, you know, they had 24 to 48 hours of GI upset or nausea and vomiting, I'm like, I'm going to find, I'm going to find a thrombose coronary artery. And, you know, I don't have the data with me right now, but it's, it's just not uncommon. And when I talk to their families, I tell them that, you know, I say, this is, this is because of the heart attack. Those were the symptoms she had. And we know that women tend to have those symptoms and it's just not advertised clearly. So I think it's, you know, even though it's been discovered, it's been known, it's still not widespread and people still expect to have the crushing chest pain and not sort of like flu-like symptoms and just feeling icky. Right. Yeah. You're not necessarily having the the left jaw pain and the left arm pain. It's, no, I've been throwing up for 24 hours and my skin looks a little gray. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I almost think like Allison's saying, we we, kind of, it's almost like we need to change the vocab that we're using. Like I feel, I feel in medical school or training, you, you are taught these things, but again, it's always the women's symptoms are atypical. No, it's, they're not atypical. They're very typical symptoms for a woman to have. Yes. (laughs) To sort of, I know we were talking about the ter- the geriatric pregnancy term earlier, and uh, one of my favorite terms that I learned in medical school was an inadequate cervix for doing a pap smear, that the cervix is inadequate if you can't see the transformation zone. And I'm like, that is not, maybe you're inadequate because you can't access it. Like, it's not her problem. <laughs> like, can't control my cervix. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The cervix is just is. It's just there. Yeah. Exactly. I, I agree. And I think that there is a specific mention on the book about biomarkers as an, an laboratory professional in me resonated and also cringe. I cringed quite a bit in that uh, chapter because as a, a person that is running a test and we are expecting a certain threshold, certain numbers and values, I think that we are still lagging behind and we just go by what the manufacturer says, but there's not really a lot of change in that. I mean, we have those standard values for hemoglobin, for troponin, I think is the example they give. But if you really look at the literature and how these things are developed and haven't changed in a long time, we are now discovering that some of the strongly held numbers and values do not necessarily match what the reality is. And I think a lot of work needs to be done retrospectively using all of our large data samples from laboratories to look at like, does this really match what certain populations of patients need? Or is this something that we've been calling abnormal for however long? And it's actually quite it's normal for this sector. And I think specifically women, we we do see that a lot. And the example they gave was like, oh, that's right. Um, I think something else that was recently, you know, they've also looked at race and ethnicity and all sorts of other changes in biomarkers because we've been holding on to this, like this range is what you need, but for who? And how many studies were done. And I do have experience advocating, especially in research for inclusion of women, because I do agree. And there's that bias of not including female participants because of hormonal changes and all that. And instead of requiring that the researchers adjust their protocol to capture that information, they just let people do without people who are during their menstrual cycles. Like they either have people before or after, either women or males. And so that just leaves this huge proportion of the population who's, that data is going to be useless to them. So, so we have, I mean, now that there's been a lot of change in inclusion and having to 
adjust your protocols to make sure that you are including everyone. But that's just starting. We still, so most of the old science or the science that's already there does not have that as a requirement. And so we makes you want to question some of the, the stuff that we do in the laboratory in terms of how much does that range really explain what's happening to a woman? In my mind, that's especially I was recently a patient as well. And that you know, not not being allowed to receive a blood product I needed because people are afraid that I'm going to develop antibodies and what's going to happen if I want to be pregnant again. I'm like, just ask me, <laughs> you know, not right. having blood sucks. <laughs> I needed yeah. some of that. Right. And also I just had this horrific experience and I'm in a hospital from, from having a kid. Maybe I'm thinking I don't want to have another. It's fine. Right. <laughs> Give me the blood and Not products. being able to breathe or move. I mean, that was, I think, a shocking. And I thought, you know, that threshold of your, how low does the hemoglobin need to go before they actually give you a unit? Not, of course, it's a medication. It has risks. But in my mind, I was thinking those decisions, like who are they made for? You know, blood products in general are this huge area where we have, and we just have these rules, like certain people do get or don't get certain blood products. Right. Um, Yeah. And I feel like it could have been explained to you. Like we're nervous about like giving you this blood transfusion because Mm -hmm. of X, Y, and Z. But again, like you said, you are the one that can make the decision. (laughs) Right. You know, well, I feel like a lot of I'm not going to get too deep into the weeds here, but I feel like a lot of the conversation just in our society in general is centered around what if this woman wants to have another baby or or whatever. It's okay, but maybe she doesn't. Have you asked? Are you talking to her? That sort of thing. I feel like a lot of policy decisions are made based on, well, she's got to be able to have a baby. And I'm like, well, you don't know. She wants to have a baby. So let's talk about it. All right. So getting back to the topic of of the book, Invisible Women, kind of a few general wrap-up questions. Is there anything that you strongly agreed with or strongly disagreed with whenever you were reading the book that like jumped out at you and you're like, I don't agree with that, or I very much agree with that, that we haven't already discussed? So I'll say one of the, and again, it's not so much one specific thing, but just sort of like a cognitive restructuring that I, I really appreciated that she gave me. I I feel like growing up, I was always kind of a tomboy and I always have approached life with kind of the attitude of like, I'll get in there and I'll do it. Like I'll handle it, whatever people throw at me. And sort of, she mentions this in, in business places and in different kind of, you know, careers that women are told, well, if you want to be here, you've got to put up with the same stuff. You've got to be able to handle the environment. But that that overlooks the fact that a lot of the men aren't facing the same challenges that women have in that environment. So it's not really a fair question, right? Like men aren't experiencing sexual harassment. They aren't experiencing sort of like, you know, not being invited to the after hours parties or or whatnot. And so that to me was helpful in, in that, you know, I think framing that mindset of, I don't have to be able to do the exact same things. I just need to be able to produce good outcomes. And, you know, I shouldn't be given additional challenges to work with just because of my gender. All right. Final question, I guess. How will the insights that you gained from reading this book influence your decision-making going forward? Or will it? Hmm. I I can say something about that. So um, I always like to read books that have this. I I like that it has a lot of data and information that I can relate to and go back to for references, because I think 
we all want to live in this idealized society where, you know, we can all do everything and it is not the case. And it doesn't mean that as women, we're less than because we haven't, I don't know, broken records in marathons. It's just that, you know, a lot of people haven't had, you know, been allowed to run marathons in the last, you know, maybe by the last 50 years, that's, they didn't think that women could and wouldn't let them, you know? And so it's not, it's very recent that a lot of women had had the ability to participate fully in society and not all women are. So even though I may have the ability to be in places where other women may not have been 50, 70 years ago, that doesn't mean we have not, women have not gotten there yet. And so, yeah, we need to have more information and we need to share the information. And so to me, you know, referring to this book and sharing other books like it with others and letting them know, yes, that there is a data gap and then we need to study it and we need to share what we know. So to me, this book is very valuable in that way. And there's that whole chapter about gender neutrality. And we could talk a lot about that too, but in my mind, we're not there yet. We are not there yet. I wish we were, that it would just not matter. But until we are, we need to keep fighting and making this information known. And I think, you know, I'm really happy that I did read this book because it there's other books out there that kind of tackle the same thing about, you know, women who are trying to move up in the professional or, you know, in the academic ladder and things like that. And just, but also making sure to share you know, this title with colleagues, with people who are interested in pursuing similar career paths, because I, I mean, you know, because, you know, before I would say starting on this career path, I almost felt like we were in a sense there until I was facing all these, you know, challenges and these difficulties and, um, you know, harassment or what have you. And, and that's when I realized, wow, we still there's still a long way to go. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think I had the same experience. We're sort of coming out of, you know, undergraduate. I was very much like, oh, okay, yeah, like we figured it out. We've solved it. Oh, and, um, <laughs> yeah. And I, I think now I'm a little um, a little more uh, circumspect maybe about that. And, uh, and I think that that's, again, the, sort of the take home from her book. And one of the keys that I want to try to keep in mind is sometimes you don't even recognize something as a problem because it's just the way that you've lived and it's just how things have always been. So, you know, I think being open to being a little more imaginative and not accepting something is like, well, that's just how it is. That's just how it's yeah. always been. And, and sort of trying to, you know, not just include women by like letting them into medical school or letting them into the laboratory, but also making them feel more comfortable, more safe there and um, listening to their concerns. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a that's a great place to wrap it up. Thank you guys so much for participating. Uh, this book, Invisible Women, was super interesting, and I'm really glad that I got to talk about it with you guys today. What a great discussion! I want to I want to remind uh, our listeners to tell your colleagues about the podcast and also subscribe through your favorite podcast aggregator. And also, don't forget you can receive CME CMLE credit for listening to this podcast by looking for Inside the Lab in the ASCP store on our website, www.ascp.org.